Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. Our speaker today is Pastor Jonathan Panado. We have, in our, in our series here, we have highlighted uh, the major themes in the book of Daniel. Uh, the major themes that we've seen are obedience. Uh, we see that as a constant theme throughout the book of Daniel. We've seen this concept of religious intolerance also in the book of Daniel. We've seen how those who, um, that there's actually people who are opposed um, to, to God and to God's people and to faithfulness to God. Uh, we also saw a major theme of judgment. And in fact, we were singing about that this morning. Did, did, you, did you catch that? All the hymns this morning, we were singing about the judgment. And uh, so that, that was, that was um, rather interesting. You didn't know there were hymns on there about judgment. And then in our last sermon together, which was a couple weeks ago, we looked at the issue of spiritual warfare in the book of Daniel. Um, we see it in various places. Perhaps in Daniel chapter 10 is the, the clearest place that, that we see it. And I, I did want to just highlight a little bit on the, the issue of spiritual warfare. And I have a quote up here that we're going to show and we're going to read it. A quote from the book, The Great Controversy, um, on spiritual warfare. And, and notice what this quote says. Satan is in attendance when men assemble for the worship of God. Wow. Though hidden from sight, he is working with all diligence to control the minds of the worshipers. Like a skillful general, he lays his plans beforehand As he sees the messenger of God searching the scriptures, he takes note of the subject to be presented to the people. So he's reading my notes before uh, as I'm working on them. Then he employs all his cunning and shrewdness so to control circumstances that the message may not reach those whom he is deceiving on that very point. The one who most needs the warning will be urged into some business transaction which requires his presence or will by some other means be prevented from hearing the words that might prove to him a savor of life unto life. Wow, what do you think of that? Isn't that a heavy quote? You know, where you think about that. And so, you know, the moral of the story, I think, is always come to church, right? Now, don't let anything distract you from coming to church. How did that sound? You know, yeah, that, that sounds just great. Just always come to church. Don't let anything distract you. And when you are at church, be present. How does that sound? Be present. Um, one time I, I, I was filming, um, I, I think it was when Dr. Calvin Taylor was here. And so I was in the back of the booth. We're trying to get online streaming and video streaming. And so I was in the back booth and I was filming. So I was filming what was happening up here in the front. And then, you know, how they kind of like pan through the audience, you know, just to see what the audience is doing, how, how into it they are. And so as I was panning, um, I saw people were talking and whispering the entire time. And I had my camera on them. And they just kept going at it like nothing was going on. And, you know, we're here worshiping and they're just talking and and whispering and going on. And I was zooming in on them, trying to get their attention, but nothing happened. People were talking. People were sleeping. 
They were zoned out. <laughs> Lifeless, like zombies, I don't know. Inattentive, somewhere on their phones. Others were just looking around, going on. Others, yes? <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> oh, boy. Fidgeting, walking in, walking out. So, so when you come to worship, right? When you come to worship, let's be present, right? Be present with what, what is happening here. Be focused. Because um, yeah, when you think about spiritual warfare, it, it, it's happening. And, and in this quote, it, I mean, it, it brings it that, that Satan is trying to do everything he can so that we won't be where God wants us to be. And receive the blessings that God wants for us. So, so how about that? Having a greater sense, and we, I think we spoke about that in our last sermon, having a greater sense and awareness of that middle area of, of, of just of the spirituality of what God is trying to do. It's so important. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to highlight there. I just, um, as, as I read that, I just wanted to share that. I just wanted to share that with you here. But yeah, so we've looked at these themes, and these are the major themes in the book of Daniel. Obedience religious intolerance, judgment, spiritual warfare, and there's others as well, but these are the big themes in the book of Daniel. What we're going to do today is we will move into the second half of the book of Daniel, which is the prophetic half of the book of Daniel. And what we'll discover is that these same themes, obedience, religious intolerance, judgment, these same themes that we saw in the life of Daniel, depending on you know, his decision about what he was going to eat or his decision whether he was going to pray or not pray, in these small areas, what we're going to see is that these same themes will be covered and will be revealed, but on a global and cosmic scale. Daniel chapter 7. So we see here in Daniel chapter 7, just an overview. How many beasts do we see? Four. These four beasts, uh, what were they in order? A lion, a bear, a leopard, and then just, yeah, this, just a terrible beast is what the passage says. A nondescript beast. Uh, some call it a dragon. It's just this terrible beast. Um, and where do the beasts arise out of? Detail the sea. That's right, out of the sea. Okay, now that's an important detail. Maybe not right now, but when you get to Revelation, you'll see a beast coming from the sea, and then in contrast, you'll see a beast coming from the earth or the land. So that's just an important, an important um, distinction there to be made. And I think, it, Jason, it relates to your, your ideas about where, where these nations are coming from. In Revelation, we see a beast coming from the earth. Okay, and then after, after the beast, uh, then what comes along? Yeah. Oh, but before the little horn. Before the the ancient. Before the little horn. Ten horns. I heard over there. Ten horns. Okay. Ten horns. We see ten horns, and then we see this little horn coming up, and then after the little horn, we see this judgment scene, uh, where the ancient of days comes, and the books are opened, and then you see the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving an authority. Uh, what is the interpretation of, of all this beast and these horns and these images? Well, turn your Bible to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17. Again, trying to model sola scriptura, allowing the Bible to explain itself. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17 says, The four great beasts are what? Four kings that will rise from the earth. So they're, they're, four, they're four different kingdoms. Uh, Daniel, what's the interpretation of the ten horns? Verse 24. Verse 24. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. And after, 
And after them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue the three kings. Okay, so what we want to do here is it mentions four different beasts. And and the word actually, it actually says that in verse 17. It says four great beasts. Now, when you compare it to Daniel 2, and this is the repetition we've spoken about briefly, how many medals do you have in Daniel chapter 2? You have four medals. Not only do you have four medals, but in the interpretation of Daniel chapter 2, it mentions about, for example, the bronze, it mentions a third kingdom. Do you see that? And then when it comes to the legs of iron, it says a fourth kingdom. And so we see these same key words that are used here in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17, and that's why we say these are parallel prophecies. They're covering the same, the same uh, kingdoms and the same history, but from a different perspective. Notice what, um, let me see here, it's a, uh, verse 23, Daniel 7 and verse 23. It says, he gave me this explanation. Uh, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom. And now go back to Daniel chapter 2. Just uh, keep your finger there, but let's go back to Daniel chapter 2 as we see the interpretation here. Um, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40. Notice what Daniel chapter 2 verse 40 says. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom. So that's why, so, so you see the, the, the same terminology, the same parallels, and so that's why we, we see um, that the prophecy of Daniel 7 is very similar to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. In fact, you can take, you can take your chart um, here, which is in a bulletin insert, and you can just compare Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Um, it's very similar, but then you have more detail, and you have more detail mainly when it gets to the part of, um, in Daniel chapter 2, uh, after the legs of iron, what happens? You have feet of iron and clay. In the interpretation of that, it says the kingdom will be divided, and part of it will be strong, and part of it will be weak, and they will try to unite but they won't be able to. That's a prophecy. So after the, and and then just saying what these kingdoms are, if the head of gold is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, when Rome fell, has there been one worldwide empire since Rome fell? No, there hasn't been. Everything has been, has been divided. And um, some countries are strong, some countries are weak. And we try to unite. I mean, uh, you know, you talk about the European Union as well, because we're focusing here. That's, that's where Rome fell, and then modern Europe kind of rose out of the ashes of, of Rome. So today you have the, the European Union, and, um, you know, when you hear things go well, at one time, remember, the euro was stronger than the dollar, and we're like, oh, wow, you know, what's going to happen? But then it just goes into turmoil, and England wants to pull out, and then when the other countries start joining in, it pulls down their value, and everyone's upset about, you know, Greece defaulting, and the, the Turkey. Yeah, and, and so you see all these things. Even though there's a union, they're not really divided. Some people have the euro, some nations have the euro in the European Union, some don't. Um, there really isn't that unity there. Um, not like, not like uh, a, a united empire was. And so we see this prophecy being fulfilled in this way. Um, in Daniel chapter 7, it's similar. Go to Daniel chapter 7 again. Um, so you have these four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. After the fourth beast, remember, after the fourth beast, ten horns arise. And the Bible gives us that explanation in verse 24. It says, the ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. And uh, we'll have some slides that will illustrate this here in a little bit. Ten horns, and that's when, that's when Rome fell and the modern nations of Europe um, came about. And during this same time period, then it says another horn, a little horn, will arise after this. Um, and we're going to look at a little bit more detail here about that. Any questions so far about what we've talked about? Do you see the parallels between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7? 
You see how it covers the same period, but with more detail? Okay, all right, let's, let's, uh, let's move forward here now. After the little horn, what does Daniel see? He sees the Ancient of Days, thousands upon thousands, let's read it here in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was like white like wool. Uh, verse 10, thousands upon thousands attended him, and at the very end of verse 10 it says, The court was seated and the books were open. Is this the only time a book is mentioned in Daniel? Oh, Daniel chapter 12. Okay, let's look there. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, there will be a time of trouble, such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. In the book will be delivered. Now, there's another place in the book of Daniel where a book is mentioned, Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 21. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 21. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. Interesting here. Book. What could that book be? Now, allow, allowing the Bible to interpret itself, when we go to other passages of, of the Bible, uh, the very first instance we see of a book and of, and of names and these kinds of things is found in Exodus chapter 32. Moses is up in the mountain for 40 days. And when he comes down after the 40th day, what, what are the children of Israel doing? Yeah, they just, you know, they're like, yeah, there's Moses, he's been gone for 40 days, we don't know if he's died or not, you know, let's just uh, make a little calf and, and worship him. And they just, they just went back into total uh, revelry and paganism and, and orgies and all kinds of stuff, and, and Aaron kind of let it happen, which speaks a little bit about leadership there. But uh, anyways, and so as Moses comes down, and he's upset with the people, and then he starts, though he's upset with the people, he starts interceding. Uh, with God. And God wants to just wipe them all out. And he says, Moses, these people are no good. I'm just going to wipe them all out. I'm going to kill them all right now. And Moses, from you, I'm going to make a great nation. And then Moses starts interceding for the people. And he says, no, God. He says, blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses is saying, no, blot me out instead of the people. Save the people. That's, that, that, that speaks a lot about leadership there as well, about positive leadership, the heart that Moses had for these people, the love that he had for these people. And so Moses says, blot me out of the book that you have written. And then God responds, whoever has sinned against me, them will I blot out of my book. Very interesting. Psalms here also mentions uh, this concept of a book in Psalm 69, verse 28, speaking about the wicked. It says, may they be blotted out of the book of oh, life. So here it gives us a little bit more, more, um, more detail. The book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Um, and, then, and then the Apostle Paul here in Philippians, he's talking about um, Philippians chapter 4. And he's saying, whose names, he's referring to workers who worked with them and who helped them in that epistle. And he's saying, whose names are in the book of life. And so you see this concept of the book of life, of names being written in the book of life in the Bible. In Revelation, this is huge, in Revelation chapter 20, um, it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Now, isn't that interesting? Where did we just see a book being opened? 
Daniel chapter 7. You know, the, the idea here is judgment. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I want to make sure your name's written in there, right? Yeah, a judgment. Uh, the, B, the Bible here speaks to us of judgment. That book there is the book of life. And this passage to me gives us a glimpse, I think, of heaven and of the order that there exists in heaven. I mean, sometimes it seems, I don't know for you, but it's heaven for me sometimes seems so um, ethereal, so otherworldly, so mystical and intangible. Like, what is heaven? Is it just clouds up there? And can you, can you grab it? Or it's just kind of everybody's floating. Um, but heaven is a real place. There are records in heaven. Imagine that. There are records in heaven. There is order in heaven. There is a process in heaven when it comes to the judgment. Just like we take records here. Um, and we write things down and we have journals and we make note of things. Uh, how many of you have a ledger for finances, right? And you make note of your spending and these kinds of things. Hopefully you do. Um, and we, we take note. Um, if, if we work, for example, you know, as a pastor, um, I take notes of my parishioners and just to make sure, you know, I don't forget. And I remember, well, you know, we talked about this and talked about that. For my memory, you know, we, we, we take notes. Um, if you're a social worker, you know, you visit, client or visit clients or, or patients, I'm not sure, and you take notes. Um, when you go to see the doctor, right, and then the nurse comes or the, and, they take, and they take notes, um, about you. Uh, heaven also has this process for notes. Not only do they have a, a process for notes, but as we also have a process um, for judging people, right? When someone commits a crime, we don't just say guilty, you're in jail. Uh, there's a process. There's a process that we follow. Um, so heaven has this process for judgment. It's enlightening. Um, but we want to make sure that our names are written in that book. Isn't that right? We want to make sure our names are there. Every one of you here, better make sure your name's written in there, right? Is that good? Have you ever been to a place, maybe you signed up for a class, and somehow your name wasn't on the list? Yeah, right? And then they're calling roll, present, 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 and then everyone you know, says present, and then they go to do what they're doing, and then you're the only one there standing. And they haven't called your name. How does that make you feel? You know, we want to make sure that our name is written on that book. In fact, we're going to sing a song about it today. When the roll is called the Beyonder. That's what that song's about. Making sure our names are written in the book of life. Okay, well, let's, let's keep moving on here. So he sees this judgment scene, and then in verse 13, Daniel chapter 7, and verse 13, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and in my vision at night I looked, and, and there before me was, was one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds, with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. Now, it's hard to illustrate what's, what's happening here. Um, but just, just a note here, have we seen that term, Son of Man, anywhere else? Where have we seen that? The Gospels, right? Who used that term? Jesus. Jesus used that term. Where do you think Jesus got that, uh, that term from, Son of Man? From Daniel. 
from Daniel. And so every time that Jesus is using this title over and over again, the Son of Man, he gets it from the book of Daniel, and his purpose is that when individuals in his time heard the Son of Man and heard him referring to the Son of Man, they would go back to where? The book of Daniel. And it would awaken in their ideas uh, the, 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 the prophecies of Daniel and the prophetic book of Daniel. And, and think about that there was this individual in the fiery furnace, wasn't there? Who was that individual? And Nebuchadnezzar says it looks like, like one of the sons of God, or, or some translation says the son of God. Now that's interesting. You know? uh, and then there's this other individual in Revelation, that's called, or in Daniel, it's called Michael as well. Every time Jesus uses this term son of man, he was pointing his listeners to the book of Daniel. And so what Daniel is doing is he is giving us a glimpse into the Godhead, the Trinity, something that was veiled in the Old Testament. But, but Daniel is giving us glimpses of that. Who is this other individual? Who is this son of man? And not only that, but notice the characteristics of the son of man in Daniel chapter 7. And verse, and verse uh, 13, he approaches the ancient of days, and he, the son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language did what? Worshipped him. Who is the only person we should worship? You know, God. God. And so, so Jesus, when he's using these terms, and, and this was the problem, right? The people in Jesus' day could not accept that Jesus was divine. They, they, in fact, they accused him of blasphemy. But Jesus was pointing them to this, to this book that he was more than just a man. He is the son of man who is worthy to receive worship. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So herein in Daniel chapter 7, we see a glimpse of something that is veiled in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New Testament... Of, of, of God, of who he is, of the Trinity, of the Godhead. We see glimpses of it in Genesis chapter 1, where God said, let us you know, make man in our image. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, who will go for us? You know, little glimpses, but it's, it's not, even Elohim is, is a plural term, but you know, it's just veiled. But in the New Testament, we see truly who God is who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit. And here in the book of Daniel, it is giving us an insight into the nature of God. Did you ever see that before? That's what Daniel is all about, showing us who Jesus is. Okay, let's move on. Any questions up to this point? Let's move on. Now, Daniel has this fascination with the fourth beast. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 19, um, he says in verse 19, Daniel chapter 7, verse 19, Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and its bronze claw. And he continues to describe this. You know, Daniel has this interest in this fourth beast. Who is this fourth beast? And, uh, and then the prophecy, give, you know, it gives the explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. A fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It's Rome. And then it says, from this kingdom, ten horns will arise, and from them another king will arise. And so what, what do we see here with these ten kings is here is the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom. And when Rome falls, Rome is divided up into, I mean, ten kingdoms, I mean, give or take. The modern nations of, of Europe, you have the Anglo-Saxons, who are they? From England, you have the Alemanni, who are they? Uh, Germans. You have the Germans, you have the Franks, who are they? 
you know, the French. And so you see, after the fall of Rome, the modern nations are rising. That's where these ten horns come from. But then among this, and during this time, historically, as Rome falls, it says there's this other king that will arise. This king, verse 24 says, this king, it says, it is different. This king is different from the earlier ones. And it will subdue three kings. So as we're looking at this time period of 476 or 493, um, it says that this other power would arise. So the question is, who is that power? Who is that power who arose during that same time? Who filled in the void that Rome left behind? The Roman Empire. Probably know what the answer is. There's four characteristics, though, that help us um, determine um, and identify that. Um, identify who that is. Four characteristics speak against the Most High. Um, have we seen in the book of Daniel anyone speaking against the Most High? Or speaking boastfully? Or proudly? Yeah, Belshazzar and also Nebuchadnezzar. And so as you see that same theme of arrogance and, and, and boasting is coming back here in Daniel chapter 7. But not only is this speaking boastful words or great words, this little horn is speaking, it's a flashback to Nebuchadnezzar, but it also becomes blasphemous in nature. The speaking becomes blasphemous in nature. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is usurping the prerogatives of God. And this little horn is doing it. So Nebuchadnezzar was just saying, look at me, look at great Babylon. But he really wasn't messing with what God was doing. He was just saying, I'm great. But this little horn is, is speaking boastfully also. But then he's going into the prerogatives of God, changing times and laws. Just blasphemy. So you see this, this religious political power arising as Rome falls and coming to power as Rome falls. Who could that be? Historically speaking. All right. Now, changing the times and laws. And this combination is interesting because there is only one commandment. When we're speaking about God's law, there is only one commandment that connects both law and time together. What is that commandment? The fourth commandment. The Sabbath commandment. Um, honor the, um, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Hmm. Was anything happening during this time that was affecting the Sabbath commandment? And who was doing it? What day do the majority of Christians worship on? And when did that happen? If the commandments is Sabbath, why is everybody else worshiping on Sunday? What happened? We can trace it back to this time, the 300s, the 400s, that there was a shift in Christianity from worshiping on Sabbath to worshiping on, Sa- on Sunday. And who was behind it and who was doing that? Hmm think about that then there is this other characteristic oppresses god's people now we know that rome uh, rome oppressed god's people the emperor uh, nero who we believe um, was the one behind uh, the death of the apostle paul nero there was also another emperor diocletian um, so rome did persecute god's people if you see this is i think a picture of the Colosseum. Um, and that's what they would do with Christians. They would throw them in the Colosseum, and then they would let the wild animals out. Um, if you see, there's also individuals that are crucified up here. Jesus wasn't the only person who was crucified. There were others. That was just a common practice back then. And they would take Christians, they would crucify them, and some of them, they would even decided to use them as torches, and they would light them on fire while they were still alive, and they would burn them um, there alive. So Rome persecuted God's people, 
But um, who else persecuted God's people? When, Rome, when the Roman Empire fell off, fell off the map, you know, who continued to persecute God's people? The church of the Middle Ages picked up the persecution right where Rome had left off. The biggest persecutor of God's people, believe it or not, was God's people. How does that sound? Who were the ones who killed the prophets in the, in the Old Testament times? Who were the ones who rejected the prophets and killed the prophets? God's people. God's people did. There was no greater persecutor of heretics than the church of the Middle Ages. My friends, religion, when it is devoid of the Spirit of God, can commit the worst of atrocities, and they do so in the name of God. And so we have these, these three characteristics, uh, speaking blasphemous words, taking the prerogatives of God, being religious and being political at the same time. Um, we see him also changing the times and the laws. Uh, we also see him oppressing God's people during this same time. And then the final characteristic is that strange and kind of bizarre language. He's going to do it for time, times, and half a time. Have we seen this word before in the book of Daniel? Where have we seen it? Yes, that's right. That's right. Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, the prophecy comes against Nebuchadnezzar and it says, how many times will pass over him? Seven times will pass over him. So this is, this is a new language. It's just the same themes from the stories are being, are being demonstrated in, uh, in the prophetic half. So what does, this, what does this mean here? Time, times, and half, and half a time. The Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew of this word in Daniel chapter 4 of time, times, and half a time means uh, the meaning is a year. In the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, they literally use the word year. For Nebuchadnezzar, let seven years pass over him. That's why we understand that he was there for seven years. Now, the time, times, and half a time, and I don't want to lose you here, but um, so if it means a year, a time would be single, one year. Times is the plural. How many years would that be? Two years. And then half a year, or half a time, is half a year. So when you do the math, what we're talking about here is three and a half years. Now the question is, are these three and a half literal years, or are they three and a half symbolic years? Why? Why are these symbolic years and not literal years? You know, there were seven literal years in Daniel chapter 4, right? With Nebuchadnezzar. Why are these now not uh, literal years? Three and a half literal years. Okay, all right, I'll give you the answer. Um, first of all, the Greek word used here is different from the Greek word used in Daniel chapter 4. The Hebrew word is the same, but the Greek word is different, giving us that there's a different understanding of this. It's not a literal year the way it was in Daniel chapter 4. Are you following me here? The, the Greek word used for time, times, and half a time here in Daniel is the, the, the idea of a season of time. A certain amount of time, more perhaps than a year. So that's the first hint that this is that these aren't three and a half literal years. Um, but there's something more. This little horn represents the greatest, the most global, most universal, and cosmic antagonistic power against God. And so, you mean to tell me? that the greatest, most cosmic, antagonistic power against God will only last a literal three and a half years. Think about that. Think about that. Nebuchadnezzar was a beast for how long? 
seven years, and this beast's power will only last for three and a half literal years? That, that, doesn't, that doesn't make sense, does it? You know, that doesn't make sense. Now, um, how long was Israel captive in Babylon? 70 years. And here, this greatest, most powerful enemy of God is only around for three and a half years? That doesn't seem right. How long, was, uh, the, how long were the children of Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. And yet, this, this most antagonistic, terrible, terrible thing, only lasting for three and a half years? I mean, it, it, looking in modern days, we have wars that last longer than three and a half years. Uh, World War II, one of the most terrible things that has ever happened, lasted for how long? Six years, maybe, or so? Um, or so? I mean, we, I mean, just this last war that we've gotten ourselves in has lasted more than, I mean, when did that start? 2001, and we still have you know, troops in there. We're pulling them out. And we're talking about 15 years. It's a long time. You know? And it's not even that major, but this that is that major is only lasting three and a half years. You see here, the time frame doesn't make sense for us to view these as three and a half literal years. Are you following me? I mean, if this thing is only lasting three and a half years, I mean, it's not even worth mentioning it in Bible prophecy. But, and so the events that are taking place here are so cosmic that it requires a significant amount of time to develop. And so we see another principle being developed here that in the cases of prophetic utterance, there is what we call the, the day for a year principle. And we see that in Numbers chapter 14, verse 34. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 7, uh, 4 and verse 6. We also see it in the Jubilee um, year of, of, of uh, Leviticus chapter 25, where this literal time each day represents a year. And so when you do the calculation, when you do the math, what we're talking about here is a time frame of 1,260 years. And so when we put these four characteristics together... This power arising at the fall of Rome, this power that is arising as the, as the modern nations of Europe are, 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 are getting together, and this power is characterized by uh, blasphemy, taking the prerogatives of God upon himself. Uh, he is changing the times and the laws of God. He is oppressing God's people, and he is doing this for a period of 1,260 years. You see, there is no other uh, entity that can fit this other than the church of the Middle Ages, filling in the vacuum left by the fall of Rome. And the church of the Middle Ages not only had power for, for all of the Middle Ages, or for the Dark Ages, but it still is hanging around here today. And it still is influential. What other nation or country or entity or anything has lasted that long? Did Babylon last that long? Did, did, uh, did uh, Rome last that long? Greece? You know, they're, 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 they didn't last that long. But there is this institution, the Church of the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church, that held sway for so many years, had political power, had religious power for over a thousand years. That's unbelievable. And it still has influence and power today. And in fact, there is this, there is this description that that horn is a different kind of king. It is a keen, but it is a different kind of keen. And who can deny, as we look at the Pope, that he is not a keen, but a different kind of keen. So what we've seen here in Daniel chapter 7, just to wrap things up, what we see in Daniel chapter 7 is that we see the same 
the same, uh, the same movement, the same images, the same beasts, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. We see more detail. We see the breaking up of Rome. In Daniel chapter 2, it was used the imagery of clay and iron. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see ten horns that are rising. And then we see this little horn that is causing all kinds of havoc against God, the greatest enemy against God. And then we also see this judgment scene in Daniel chapter 7. Where Daniel leaves off, John will pick up in the book of Revelation. And the Bible will tell us in the book of Revelation that Rome will continue to play a powerful political and religious role in the end of time. That's what Revelation tells us. Now, we can't do anything about that. We can't do anything about the Pope. Um, that's that's you know, beyond our hands. But what can we do? Well, what's important for us from Daniel chapter 7 is that we can make sure that our names are written in the book of life. That's what we can make sure of. Be faithful to God right now in our everyday lives. What does that look like for you? What does obedience or faithfulness to God look like for you right now? What is God calling you to do? What is that one thing that God is calling you to do just right now? What's that one thing that you're not doing and that you know God is asking you to do? Can you make that decision right now? Can we do that? This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with them at www.jaxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.